Hello and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day. For those of you new to the Church Leaders Podcast, our goal is to help those working in churches to lead better every day. For the past several years, we've done this by interviewing today's top leaders and gleaning their insights into ministry, culture, and theology on a weekly basis. In a few weeks, however, we're going to shift gears to that of a seasonal approach. Each season will consist of a collection of interviews exploring a topic that the Big C Church is grappling with. Originally, we planned on launching this new series of podcasts on the topic of abortion and the future of the pro-life movement. While that is still a relevant topic, and one we'll explore later this year, the events that transpired in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th thrust another, more pressing topic into our culture's consciousness. That is Christian nationalism. Our editorial team decided it would better serve our listeners to broach this topic while it is still on everyone's minds. So starting in a few weeks, we're going to look at the topic from a sociological, theological, and pastoral perspective. You'll likely hear information and perspectives you haven't heard before. You might not agree with all of it, but at the end of the season, you'll definitely be more informed and better equipped to help your congregation approach Christian nationalism from a Christ-centered perspective. Also, just a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Church Leaders Podcast, please leave us a review. Your reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content as well. And now, allow me to introduce our guest for this week's episode. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day, and I sat down with Carl Vaders for this week's conversation. Carl has been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years. He's the teaching pastor of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, a healthy small church in Orange County, California. Carl has written several books, including his latest, The Church Recovery Guide, How Your Congregation Can Adapt and Thrive After a Crisis, published by Moody Press. He shares resources to help small church pastors lead well and to capitalize on the unique advantages that come with pastoring a small church at carlvaders.com, so be sure to check that out as well. Now, in this week's episode, Carl and I discuss how churches can make a healthy recovery after a crisis, something that all of us are currently facing. Among other topics, Carl shares how churches can effectively address a shortfall in finances and why small churches have some advantages during crises like the one we're currently facing. A very thoughtful and encouraging conversation, so be sure to share this episode with your team and with your colleagues. Now, please, won't you join me in my conversation with Carl Vaders. Carl, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. So good to have you with us. Thanks, Jason. Good to be with you. Now, Carl... uh, Wow, we, we survived 2020, right? And uh, we even got through at least a whole month of 2021. Um, without a doubt, life has been challenging, to say the very least. Um, and it's been challenging for the church as well. And you, as, as one who has pastored for many, many years, pastored a small church specifically, you also um, help mentor and resource and encourage pastors who are leading small churches. Carl, just kind of kind of briefly, because um, we could probably just go on this this question I'm about to ask for hours, but just kind of briefly, as you look back, as you reflect on the past twelve months or so, um, can you can you share what you see as maybe the general state of the small church here in the U.S.? 
Wow, that that is a question that we could go in for a long time on, couldn't we? Yeah, it, it, it's obviously the small church has faced you know challenges just like everybody else has. Um, but in smaller churches, the the way forward is is a, a different mix of blessing and challenge than it is for the larger churches, as is typical, which is you know part of the reason why I do a you know ministry um, that focuses on small congregations because we often face things in a very different way than our friends and neighbors in big churches. Uh, one of them, for instance, with technology, um, when this hit, you know, from one Sunday here in California, anyway, one Sunday, we're having church as usual. And there's kind of this talk about this virus that's coming that might be kind of bad. We even made a joke on Sunday morning about it. Maybe we should just do air hugs today. <laughs> uh, you know, and that was that was our you know, that was the, the, the depth of our thought about it. And by Tuesday or Wednesday, you are not meeting for the next few Sundays. Uh, you cannot be in your building. And our church, like a whole lot of other small churches, we weren't doing live streaming at the time. So we had a couple of days to figure out how to do a live stream service that we'd never done before. Um, you know, our friends in large churches, they were already live streaming most of them. So while it was obviously a challenge for them not to be in their buildings as well, they simply had to, oh, we're just doing live stream now. We already do that. So now we just need to get the word out. But the challenge for the small church was different. And now as we're coming to hopefully near the end of things, we find the opposite taking place, which is a lot of large churches still cannot meet in person except for maybe in their small groups. But small churches are, uh, are able to do so because they're able to uh, you know, keep things clean. They're able to keep proper distancing mm -hmm. in a small group that you can't necessarily do in a larger group. So small churches and big churches I think the weight of both challenge and opportunity is equal, but the challenges are different and the opportunities are different. Yeah, it's good. That's well said. Now, Carl, in your most recent book, you had the opportunity to write a book this this year, and I think it was one that you weren't really expecting to write, but um, Moody, uh, you know, came to you. You wrote this book called The Church Recovery Guide, and in that, I've, I've had the opportunity to, to read over it and. Um, I, I came across this this list. You shared 10 principles that churches must work on, that they must reinforce in order to recover from crisis. And, and all 10 are very helpful, but I would really like you to kind of speak with us about the last principle that you mentioned. Uh, you say that every church must, quote, figure out why your congregation should survive, unquote. What what do you mean by this? Because I imagine if, if uh, pastors listening in, they're like, well, of course my congregation should survive, right? So so what do you mean by this, and why is this principle so important? Yeah, it, you, well, you went right for the easy one, didn't you, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is a tough question to ask. Um, we, we often just start with the assumption, well, if it exists, it should survive. But every single thing has a lifespan, uh, you know, aside from you know, the church itself, which will, you know, live on in heaven with Christ forever. Uh, I, I, I'm unaware of a single congregation from the first century that's still alive today. Um, congregations do seem to have a lifespan. And when they've reached the end of their why, often it is time to close the congregation. So I'm not talking in that point about, you know, should you figure out whether or not to close your congregation, but we do need to ask the why. Why are we here and what are we supposed to do? If it's simply because we've always existed, well, you know, one of the, 
let's approach it from a, a slightly easier door and then we'll get to the harder part. In a congregation, for instance, we should always be asking, why do particular ministries and programs exist? Mm-hmm. So during COVID, for instance, most congregations have had to close down for a certain season, maybe almost everything that they did. And even in our congregation now, while we've been able to meet physically for a while, we still don't have certain things up and running again because we're not able to to do them properly given the restrictions that we need. And part of what I ask small church pastors to do is ask yourself this, before you decide to put all your programs and ministries back in place, ask yourself a couple questions. And one of them is, if we weren't going to, if we didn't already do this ministry before COVID, would we want to start it after COVID? Hmm. And if the answer is no, we wouldn't be starting it now if it didn't already exist before, then maybe just don't start it again. Hmm. Right, (laughs) right. right. That's good. And one of the ways to get there is ask yourself, honestly, did we really miss it? Like, or were we able to function well without it? And maybe were we able to take the time and resources and energy that we've been putting into that and put it in a place that was actually better where we knew the answer to why. Hmm. So when you ask that on an individual program or ministry basis, it's a little easier maybe to digest the question. But then we also have to ask the question about our congregation as a whole. Why is our church even existing here? If you've got a good reason why, then continue to work on that and continue to move towards that. But if you can't ask why, then you really need to debate whether or not a congregation is to stay open or not. And real quick, before we get off of that, before anybody hears what I'm not saying, I love that phrase. Don't hear what (laughs) I'm not saying, right? Um, I am not saying that your church must have some unique thing to offer that is just so different from everybody else. I, I, I find that even as we're trying to seek our purpose as individual Christians, a lot of us spend so much of our time looking around trying to figure out what do I do that is different from every other Christian on earth? And I don't think that's the way we find our purpose. 99% of what I'm supposed to do as a Christian is exactly the same as 99% as what you, Jason, should be doing as right. a Christian. So just do that. And here's the deal. If you do on the, if you do that 99%, you know, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, the stuff that everybody's supposed to be doing. Mm. The 1% usually takes care of itself because it's being filtered through you. Mm. So as a congregation, it's the same thing. It's not a matter of what are we doing that's so different, so unique, and so special. No, simply are we fulfilling the great commission, the great commandment? Are we ministering and worshiping and fellowshipping and offering of value to the people who come into the community that we serve? And if so, it doesn't matter that it's not so special that it's going to be written up somewhere or that you're going to be a guest on a podcast like I am today. You're just going to continue to do the work. But is it work that is of value to the kingdom of God? that's what we're talking about. It's not about being special, unique, relevant, or cool. It's about doing God's purposes through the congregation. Yeah, that, that, that's excellent. And, and one of the things I really appreciated about that principle, because um, as I was reading through all of them, and I came to that last one, figure out why your congregation should survive, was that I think that what I have found in my conversations with pastors around the country um, throughout this, you know, this last year or so is taking time to really reflect, taking time to stop. And and as you said, just kind of assess, where are we? Have we just been doing things because that's just how we've always been doing them? You know, and, and it gives us the opportunity to get back to the core of, of 
what God has called the church to be, right? For every single individual church, you know, what is it that God's called this church to be and how are we being a light and a beacon in our community? And so, um, you know, this whole idea of figuring out why your congregation should survive, it's not this idea of we should survive just because we have, you know, X amount of families that have been a part of this and, you know, this is what we've been doing for generations or, or whatever, or we, you know, have this building here on this corner in this town that's been here forever. But it's this idea that, man, God has invited us to be on mission with him. And, you know, it's no, it's no mistake that we happen to be here, right? And yeah. It gives us this time to, to just kind of sit back and, and dig a little more deeply into that why question that I think is so, so very important. So I'm glad that that um, amongst everything else that that is, is one that uh, you encourage pastors to, to process through and to think through. Cause I think um, it, it changes. I mean, it changes our perspective. Like you said, it changes maybe where we um, invest energy, whether it's our own energy or the energy of, of our people or our volunteers, where we, you know, invest resources, you know, or how we shift resources around. So super, yeah. super helpful thing to work. Especially in this past year when, you know, we've been churches that did not change, you know, there have been a, there are a lot of churches in the world that have been kind of stuck. And I'm not talking about size-wise. I'm talking about just stuck, not moving forward in mission for whatever reasons. And all of a sudden, uh, even the most stubborn churches have had to change this year, right. <laughs> whether you right. wanted to or not. You had to figure out how to do it without meeting in your church building or without being able to do, you know, whatever aspect of ministry there is. So given given the chance that we've had to make changes, it would be such a shame to go through all of this and not learn something of value about it. And, and so ask the why. Why are we here? And if you're why can't be answered because we're fulfilling the great commandment or great commission if the why is something other than that because we have a building to maintain or mm -hmm. because there should be a church with our denomination in this town or you know if your why is in any way that doesn't connect to the great commandment or great commission then we really need to reconsider it and this period of time more than any other time in my lifetime is forcing us to ask those hard questions and i think if we don't at least get that blessing and benefit out of it, then it's just a loss. And I refuse to accept this past year as simply a loss. Yeah, that's good. That, that is so good. I love that. Now, Carl, you, t you touched on this a little bit, but I, I'd love to hear, you know, what you see as some of the, you know, maybe unique advantages that small churches uh, might have during times of crisis. Well, yeah, I, I think... I think we're seeing some of it now because um, right. I, I actually had a conversation a while ago with a friend of mine who is uh, she has a doctorate in neurobiology and she also happens to be a small church pastor's wife. So she's got her, her feet in two very interesting worlds right mm -hmm. now. And um, so I, I asked her about, you know, given the trauma that we're all in right now, because she deals particularly with the trauma and its effects on the brain. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, when I, when we do come back to our congregations again, what would you suggest that we emphasize? And she, she said a couple of things that really struck to me. The first one she said was first thing, Carl, is you got to understand people in trauma can't hear explanations. Hmm. I said, what, what do you mean by that? She said, when we are in trauma and right now to a certain one degree or another, everybody you meet is under a level of trauma different than they've ever experienced before. When you're in trauma, the, the, the parts of your brain that are, that think through things logically actually go dark and the parts of your brain that are action and emotion oriented light up like a Christmas tree. Hmm. 
So people are right now in action and emotion mode and their logic centers are not acting really strongly, which explains a whole lot of what we've seen over the last nine months yeah, or so, yeah, it does. <laughs> doesn't it? Right. And she says, so I said then, well, then what do we do about that as pastors, as church leaders? And she said, what people need is familiarity and relationships. Hmm. They need to be in places that they know with people that they know and love. So as your congregation is able to come back, her, uh, her advice, and I think it's very, very wise, was preach a little shorter. And if you're already just doing 10-minute homilies, God bless you, you're good. <laughs> but you know, if you're used to, like me, doing you know, potentially up to 45, 50-minute sermons, shorten that down because they can't hear it anyway. Hmm. Right. And spend more time doing things that are familiar, like worshiping together, singing songs together as soon as we're allowed to do so, being with familiar people in familiar places, doing familiar acts of worship. This is not the time to change up your song list dramatically. Now is the time to sing things that people are, are a little more familiar with that reaches their heart and that doesn't challenge their head so much. Mm. And small churches, I think, are great environments for people to gather with people they actually know in a place that means something to them, singing songs that touch their heart and reaching out to worship Jesus together. So I think the, the relational and familial things that small churches do especially well are what people need more than ever right now. Yeah, that's good. That's very, very helpful. Um, Carl, what about things like technology? Because um, we look at, you know, some small churches, they don't rely on a lot of technology, right? And then you might have some really large churches that are very heavily dependent upon technology. Are there, um, are there advantages during times of crisis or in recovering from crisis where a dependence or um, uh, an independence from technology is, is helpful? Yeah, the first thing that strikes me on that is, it's been interesting for years now, if you've ever watched, you know, any kind of a post-apocalyptic movie or TV show from, you know, Terminator, Matrix, Walking Dead or whatever, mm -hmm. in every one of those post-apocalyptic stories, the grid is either the problem or the grid is what goes down. Right. As it turns out, when it does happen to us, the grid's the only thing working. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's turned out to be exactly the opposite of what right. they all said. So you've got all this technology that we need to rely upon. But he, here's what I've noticed, um, and I think especially helpful for small churches, but for everybody. Uh, yeah, we have now, all of a sudden now, the, the food delivery app has found its day, right? <laughs> right. Those kinds of things. But here, here's the thing. There's a lot of folks in churches of all sizes, especially seniors, who uh, they're just not going to figure out the food delivery app. Mm-hmm. And even if they can figure out the food delivery app, there's a lot of rural places where they simply aren't available. Mm -hmm. And even if it is available, there's, there's a big difference between ordering dinner on a food delivery app or having a friend from church call and say, I made a little extra food. Do you mind if I drop it by? Yeah. There's a huge, huge difference there. And so I think the technology is there and I'm grateful for it and I use it like crazy. But the thing that's really going to help us heal is not going to come through technology. It's going to come through connecting with people again. Mm. So use the the not smart smart of your uh, part of your smartphone. <laughs> Pick it up and actually make a call. I, I I love to tell pastors this, as especially as I'm working with small church pastors who are trying to figure out how do I get online or how do I frame my shot better on Sunday morning. And I try to help them with that. That needs to be done better, obviously. But by the time this is over, when we think back to this, 
the average congregation member is not going to be thinking about how well you framed your shot on Sunday morning. They're going to be thinking about the time the pastor called and said, hi, how are you doing? And when you said fine, they paused and went, you don't sound fine. Mm. Talk to me a little more and let me pray with you. That call is what they'll remember far more than the video shot on Sunday morning. So yes, let's use the technology. Let's use it better than we have. Let's continue to get better at it. But let's realize that that's not where the healing of our spirits, our souls, our our emotions, and our congregations are going to come from. It's going to come from the much more old school personal touch than anything else. Yeah, that's good, Carl. That's that's really good. Uh, I'd like to to focus um, on a couple of key areas that churches must focus on as they're recovering, and there, there's there's one that I'd like you to talk to us a bit about. Um, it's an item that is high on every church's list, more than likely, and that is finances. And uh, you know, we've heard a lot, we've seen a lot, we've seen a lot of data coming back from churches around giving um, or lack thereof over the last uh, twelve months or so. When when a church, Carl, is facing a shortfall in finances, as as many have, and they're experiencing that, what are some practical ways that ministry leaders can effectively address, you know, this uh, lower giving or a, a tighter budget? Yeah, finances are always going to be a challenge, and the smaller the church is, the more of a challenge it is. But for me, several years ago, I made a I made a big shift in my mindset about finances. I like a lot of pastors have always been uncomfortable talking about finances from the pulpit. Mm. And, you know, the, 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 the stereotype of the money grubbing pastor right. obviously comes from somewhere, but it is not typical, uh, not by a long shot. Most of us don't like talking about finances. And what happened a few years ago for me was the Lord helped me to discover this shift. His God, God doesn't need my money. Never has never will, but I need to be a generous person. Mm. And as a pastor, I want to pastor a generous church. So we need to shift the conversation from finances to generosity. Mm -hmm. And by being a generous church, it also means that the the church building and the church, um, the church corporation, for lack of a better word, the church itself should not be the place where the the church members' generosity ends up. It ought to be a pipeline through which their generosity flows. A, a, a generous church doesn't just put a lot of money in the offering. A generous church gives a lot of that money away. All right. And generosity needs to be our focus, which means someone who doesn't have the finances but steps up to volunteer to help out, that is an offering of generosity that we ought to receive just as gratefully as a large check in the offering. Mm. Yep. And and we often don't because, you know, there are certain things you have to have money to pay the light bill. I get it. But when we shift to generosity, then we can also make the shift from looking for more donors to making more disciples. Mm. Because when we're making disciples, a couple things happen. One, it creates a spirit of generosity in people. That's a big part of discipleship is generosity. Two, the more people who are volunteering and stepping up and helping out, the fewer staff I have to pay money to. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's less less money has to go out if more people are volunteering. And thirdly, disciples, generous disciples give more finances. <laughs> right. 
So when we shift to generosity instead of money, and then we make the shift to discipleship instead of simply hiring more staff, one, we don't need as many finances to carry on the ministry of the church. And two, the people who are stepping up tend to be more generous with their finances as well as with their time. So discipleship and generosity tend to answer a whole lot of those uh, questions that we usually think are financial problems, but they're typically not financial problems. They are problems of generosity and discipleship. Mm, that's good. That's really good, Carl. And so how how have you seen or how would you maybe recommend pastors during you know a time like we find ourselves in now um, approaching that topic of, of generosity? You know, they're, they're, you know, with, yeah. with their people, because people are, you know, like you said, um, you know, people can, you know, they're going through difficult times themselves. And so they can get ruffled if it's not approached in, you know, in, in the right way. So, so do you have any recommendations or suggestions around that? Yeah, we need to create as many avenues for people's generosity as possible. Um, it's been several generations now, and maybe it's been hundreds of years, I don't know, where we've really set up church systems that subconsciously say, um, you know what, I as the pastor will do the ministry for me. You just put money in the offering so I can do ministry. Mm. And nobody says that consciously. And even when I say it, I feel ugly about saying it, <laughs> right. right? Right. But when we look at the way our systems are set up, that's kind of how they're set up. Like, you don't have to go to the mission field, pay money for a missionary to go. You don't have to evangelize. We'll pay to bring an evangelist in. You don't, you know, and again, that is an overstatement and almost even an ugly way of saying it. But I think it has to be stated that strongly for us to kind of pause and go, you know, that is kind of how our systems are set up. It's like, I've even heard people claim, for instance, about millennials and Gen Y, you know, they it's hard to get them to give to missions, but they all want to go on a short-term missions trip. What's wrong with them? I go, they want to get their hands dirty. Hmm. They want to actually do the work before they're going to give the finances. That's actually a good trend and not a bad trend. <laughs> But we've, but our systems are set up to, no, let's not actually give you work to do. Let's just have you put money in the offering so we can pay the professional minister to do the work. That's not a healthy way that we've had things set up. And we have to make that shift to allow a more avenues for people's generosity than we did before. Uh, and, and then we've got to give, we've got to make that help them to connect to causes they care about and to people that they can actually make a connection to. Um, it used to be in my generation and my parents' generation, people gave out of a sense of duty. And so if they signed up to give X amount permissions or X amount in tithes, they just did it until they died or Jesus came. Mm-hmm. And that was just going to be done. And now we look at current generations and we think, well, they're not committed. They don't care. They're not generous. And that's not true. Current generations are just as generous as previous generations were, but they do it in a different way. And they're going to do it more through causes that they care about and through people that they've made a connection with. And so we need to be, make sure that they see that this cause is worth caring about. Mm-hmm. And we need to connect them to the people connected to that cause so that they've got a heart connection there. And when they do, they will commit as much and maybe even more than their parents did, but it will look different. So we need to give them an opportunity to turn their passion into generosity. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent, Carl. Such a great conversation. I wanted to give you an opportunity, though, as we're um, kind of closing up, just a couple other questions. But but are there, um, you know, as, as you have been yourself, you know, coming through in, in the, the last 12 months, talking with tons of pastors, seeing this, this, this crisis, 
you know, it's been heavy on your heart, this whole idea of recovery, you know, you've written this book. Is there, an, are there any other thought, you know, final thoughts, guidance or encouragement that's just like kind of heavy on your mind or your heart that you want to share with um, the pastors and ministry leaders who are listening in today? Yeah, let me do this. Um, when we started this thing, it was like a light switched off. All of a sudden, we can't meet in our building. The restaurants are closed. The giving is down. Uh, we went into crisis mode. And a lot of us as pastors and church leaders, uh, we we amped up our uh, our energy level. And we, because we had to, we had to respond very quickly to an immediate crisis. The switch went off. Um, some of us, have stayed in crisis and sprint mode since then, and we're burning ourselves and our congregations out. Hmm. Uh, take a look around, folks. This is no longer a sprint. It's a marathon. Even if we are near the end of it, when the pandemic is over and when health, like actual physical health returns, I think we're still in for two or three of the roughest years you've ever seen, financially, emotionally, spiritually, that there's going to be a fallout that comes after this. I, I'm not, I, I'm not trying to be pessimistic or lack of faith, but I think, I think we've got to realistically take a look and anticipate there right now. There's a lot of people frozen in position, sometimes physically because they can't leave their house, but they're like, I'm hanging in here until this is over. And then I'm out, whether that means out of their marriage or out of their church or out of their place of work. I, there's all, but there's going to be a whole lot of fallout that's going to be coming up. We are in a, a long-term marathon here. So pastor, if you're running around like crazy, trying to fix everybody's problems, you need to slow down. You need to take a nap. And I mean, literally take a nap, <laughs> right? There've been a couple of times over these last few months, this happened on two different days. I woke up, I had breakfast, I took a nap, I woke up, I had lunch, I took a nap, I woke up, I had dinner, I watched two hours of Netflix, and I went to bed. And the next morning I went, well, that was a wasted day. And then I realized, no, as hyperactive as I typically am, if my body could do that in a day, it needed to do right. that, that yep. day. Yep. So there is a reason why Sabbath is not just a suggestion, it's in God's top 10. Right. And too many pastors, here's what too many pastors do. We look around and we, we see people relaxing for their Sabbath, but not worshiping. And we think you've got to be worshiping on Sabbath, not just relaxing, but too many pastors, we're worshiping on Sabbath, but we're not relaxing. Hmm. And Sabbath is designed as both a day of worship and rest. Right. And to worship, but not rest on Sabbath is just as problematic as to rest, but not worship. Hmm. So slow down. We need to take a nap. We need to rest. We need to go into marathon mode and not sprint mode so that we don't burn ourselves, our families, and our congregations out. And that way we can be refreshed for the long-term journey because there's a lot more coming, a lot more challenges coming, but that will also mean a lot more opportunities for ministry and for growth and for kingdom advancement coming as well. Yeah, that's good. That is well said, Carl. So, Carl, it's so good to have you with us. Uh, thank you for being with us. Now, how can our listeners, those who are listening in, how can they connect with you? How can they learn more about um, this, the book that we've been discussing or learn more about the other resources that you have available for churches? Uh, yeah, the, the great thing about having a name like Carl Vader's is if you spell my name right, you can find me anywhere. So. <laughs> 
carlvaders.com carlvaders on facebook instagram twitter you 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 look for it you find me there k-a-r-l-v-a-t-e-r-s.com that's where i am excellent and we will have uh links to the book links to your website in the show notes for our listeners but once again thank you so much carl for all you do for the church um, for your heart for the kingdom and thank you for taking time to be with us today thanks jason thank you for tuning in to this week's episode Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. We hope you are finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send an email to podcast at churchleaders.com or connect with me on Twitter. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app, available for both Apple and Android. So be sure to check out FaithPlay. Until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.